1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books in East European Studies podcast series. I'm your host, Amanda Jean Swain, from the University of California, Irvine. Today, we'll be talking with Per Anders Rudling about his recent book, The Rise and Fall of Belarusian Nationalism, 1906 to 1931, published by University of Pittsburgh Press. So welcome to New Books in European Studies, Per Anders. Thank you so much. Well, we're very glad to talk to you today about your book. And to start us off, could you tell us a little bit about yourself, how you became interested in studying history, and how you became interested in Belarus in particular?
0: Well, this is a question very often get when you're working with Belarus or Ukraine, I guess, even more so Belarus. Uh, A question which uh, is not as common, as I would guess, uh, to people working on, say, Irish history or Dutch history or German or French history. Uh, Well, my background is that of a Slavist, right? I did my my master's in in Russian language and literature uh, at Uppsala University uh, in Sweden uh, many years ago by now. Um, I did my second MA in uh, Eastern European Jewish history. I was interested and am interested in relations between uh, Jews and Poles, Jews, Ukrainians, Ukrainians and Poles in the Borderlands of the Second Polish Republic, the so-called Kresy Wschodnie, the Eastern Borderlands. Then um, I did my PhD in Canada at the University of Alberta, and I was interested particularly in Belarus. Uh, um, I guess what got me interested was that it sort of, in many ways, challenged our assumptions uh, about the region, about the region in which nationalism truly in the 1990s. And also today is hegemonic and hegemonic force. Uh, here you have a country, uh, Belarus, which had one free and fair election during its existence in 1994. And in the second round of the elections, uh, over 80% of the Belarusian electorate voted for a candidate, Alexander Lukashenko, who essentially ran on a platform of re. some form of union state with Russia on a platform of Soviet nostalgia and anti-corruption and uh, in many ways uh, going along the line of uh, weakening or even undoing state independence, at least that's what he was proposing in the mid-1990s and this is a country uh, neighboring Latvia Lithuania, Poland to the south of western Ukraine uh, areas which are uh, intensely uh, nationalistic in many ways. Uh, so Lukashenko was uh, challenging uh, our con- concepts about about nationalism. And I guess my question was uh, all along, why is there a Belarus? Why does this country exist? A country in which 90% do not speak the Belarusian language, uh, uh, in which uh, Lukashenko can have such an appeal. And uh, in many ways, uh, I shouldn't use the term "exotic," but it defied many of the assumptions we very often we, we hold. So that's what what's, what made the interest in Belarus, and of course, in the German and English languages, it was virtually a terra incognito or blank spot on the uh, uh, historiographical map. Uh, there, when I started working on this fifteen years ago, there were a handful of books. Uh, in English, uh, two or three in German. There was virtually nothing written about this. And what was written was mostly dealing with uh, World War II, uh, the Stalinist era, or the perestroika years. The uh, Soviet nationalities policy, uh, the the beginning of Belarusian nationalism was was not very well covered. And uh, all this together, that you have a country here with a population larger than the three Baltic republics combined, or larger uh, than that of Austria or Belgium or, for that matter, my native Sweden, um, and still uh, virtually, well, of very very few books on this topic, uh, that made me interested in going uh, down this path, uh, and uh, I guess that's how it started. Uh, and along the along the path, uh, along the road. Belarus is not always the easiest country to work in in regards to sources and archives and uh, there were some disappointments and uh, other paths opened up and it uh, turned out that in particular, in order to understand this fundamental question, why is there a Belarus? I think the key in many ways well there can be several keys to this question but one of the keys is certainly one of the area uh, the, uh, the era around World War One and the 1920s uh, and that's where I was. That's where I was going. Uh, Lithuanian, Polish archives, Belarusian archives, and that's where I. That's where I started, and that was my point of departure.
1: Well, that's really interesting. I was going to ask you about archives, so um, I'm glad that you addressed that. That you were having to find other ways to access archives that you couldn't necessarily a- access within Belarus, and and as you said, I. There aren't a lot of books written. And in fact, when I'm looking for books to read for this um, podcast series, I have to say yours is the only book I've come across that um, specifically focused on Belarus. And that was what made it um, so interesting to me and and why I picked it immediately off um, out of a catalog and um, wanted to read it because it it certainly seems like a a huge gap in in my education in this um, uh, on this region. And hopefully by the end of the interview, our listeners will have at least um, in general an answer to that question of why is there an independent Belarus today? So before we get to that point at the beginning of the 21st century, can you talk to us a little bit about um, this region of Belarus in the uh, late 18th century, which you describe as a region east of Poland and west of Russia, and explain for us why national awareness came late to this area?
0: Yeah, it's a very complex region in the sense that uh, one of the peculiarities of, uh, of of Belarus was that, unlike Western Ukraine, uh, where the Greek Catholic or the Uniat or the Ukrainian Catholic Church was strong, um, in Belarus, the area which today is Belarus and, and in the part of Ukraine which was part of the Russian Empire in eighteen thirty nine, the the Uniat or Greek Catholic Church was outlawed. And Belarus lies very clearly on this sort of, I'm not necessarily a a fan of Samuel Huntington, but it talks about the civilizational fault line. And this one runs directly through what today is Belarus with Vilnius or Vilnia uh, being uh, primarily a Roman Catholic city or back in the days, a Jewish Roman Catholic city. In the countryside, which was about uh, well 60% perhaps uh, Orthodox, uh, the, the Greek Catholic Church was gone after 1840, and uh, Belarus was divided. Uh, the political elites between those that uh, were orientated towards Russia, the Orthodox Church, uh, and the Roman Catholic uh, influence – Uh, And the local population here did not really have very strongly developed ideas of national identity. They were local peasants in that sense, right? It was a class society. Of course, the city dwellers were Jewish mostly, or to a plurality in many cases. Uh, The landowners, uh, Polish, Roman Catholic, uh, uh, mostly Polish speakers. And the population uh, had, of course, an identity. They were aware of their peasant identity or their with the local regional identities, they knew they were not Jews, they knew they were not Poles, but what they were, this idea that they would self-identify with one particular national project was not there. And it wasn't there until very late. Um, Belarusian nationalism, uh, uh, in his uh, book, uh, Valery Bulhako, a Belarusian historian, he argues that Belarusian nationalism uh, lies between 60 and 80 years behind Ukrainian nationalism. That is, uh, chronologically, that is, uh, if the first Ukrainian paper appeared in Halichina, or Eastern Galicia, in, 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 in the Austrian Empire, in 1848 in Lviv, then the first Belarusian newspaper appeared only in 1906, right? The first complete Belarusian grammar appeared in 1918. Uh, the first complete translation of the Bible appeared as late as 1973. So this was an area in which the elites identified either with the Russian or Polish projects and uh, in which nationalism was less developed. And this was also a disadvantaged region, uh, social, socially and uh, economically. This was the, po- uh, the one of the poorest regions of the European part of the Russian Empire, with illiteracy being very high. Lithuania, I should say, also uh, Belarus, to a large extent, is located in the historical historical area of Lithuania. Right, and uh, not too long ago, we talked about what, what today is the capital of the Republic of Belarus, was called Minsk-Litovsk, right? Minsk in Lithuania. We talk about the peace of Brest-Litovsk, even though Brest is Belarus. So this historical region was, was Lithuania, right? In this region, historical region uh, of Lithuania, uh, the Lithuanians, the ethnic Lithuanians who speak the Baltic language of Lithuanian, were also very poor. Were on a similar level of uh, development, which was very low. But they had a higher level of education and were able to read and write to a large extent. The Belarusians, at least the Orthodox Belarusians, had very high levels of illiteracy. And when the first paper appeared in nineteen o six, it was very soon after a couple of issues banned. And uh, uh, the second paper that opened in nineteen o six did come to last for for a decade and was was very important. Uh, Nasha Niva, our field, but it never really reached a very large audience. It, we are talking about. Uh, a few hundred individuals, perhaps, a few dozen individuals, uh, people that were, uh, of course, more comfortable writing in Russian or Polish, or in some cases even Yiddish or German than Belarusian, but made the decision to be Belarusians. Yet the Belarusian nationalists, uh, they were a small group, and it's even hard to talk about a Belarusian national movement when this is such a small phenomenon. But what happened was that World War One changed pretty much everything. In particular, the arrival of the Germans in 1915 and the occupation of historic, well, a large sh- section of historical Lithuania, what days Lithuania and the area around Białystok and Hrodna and up to southern Latvia, What they southern Latvia, was under German control. And when the Germans arrived, they were anticipating that this would be a part of Russia. Uh, they were not really familiar with the local conditions in this part of Europe. But they were familiar with Polish nationalism, which was a concern for uh, for them in, in the second German Empire. And in order to forestall and prevent uh, Polish claim to this region, once they found out that the local people here were not fully Polish, they were not fully Russian either, there was something else, very soon the idea appeared within the circle uh, around Erich Ludendorff, uh, the German military leadership of using Belarusian, the Belarusian issue, uh, stimulating Belarusian, uh, perhaps not nationalism, but Belarusian culture and consciousness by opening schools, theaters, newspapers, educational facilities to sort of counterbalance Polish claim to the region. Of course, after 1918, well, in 1918, of course, the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk, essentially all of Belarus, Came up came very quickly in March of 1918 under German control. The Germans were reorganizing Eastern Europe according to this concept of Middle Europa. They uh, had a, fin, uh, 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 a German prince elected king of Finland. Uh, they had similar plans for the United Baltic, Baltic Duchies in in Riga. They picked a the German prince as king of Lithuania by her name, Mind the name Mindaugas August They set up a Polish puppet kingdom. Uh, uh, hetmanet in ukraine under uh, hetman Skoropadsky. in belarus they didn't install a puppet government but it tolerated a small group of belarusian nationalists which in march of 1918 declared a belarusian people's republic they tolerated them but they didn't recognize them
1: and i I'd, I'd like to stop there for a moment because the declare that declaration of independence, as you point out, is one of six in a very short period of time, which has to be some kind of record in declarations of statehood. Um, but um, I want to back up just a little bit um, to talk a little bit more about the year 1906, which is the year you designate as the start, um, and a little bit more about the Germans, um, because these were, um, I have a question about 1906, and I, and I think the, um, the German role is indicative of one of your major arguments. So you went through these um, kind of milestones of, of Belarusian um, identity formation, and particularly in terms of language use. Um, and you point out in the book, you, or you date the beginning of, of a Belarusian national movement, such as it was, given that it was a few hundred people, um, to 1902 with the first political party. Why did you pick 1906 as the start date Um, for this study? Um, What about that year uh, represents a a significant um, date for looking at Belarusian nationalism?
0: Well, I guess for any form of categorization or classification, I guess you need to have a start date and an end date. Right. 1906, uh, the way I saw it, I actually, I, when I was talking about this in Lithuania and in, in Minsk, I was challenged on this. People said I should go back to the 1860s and the, and the Polish uprising, the Belarusian, the first Belarusian paper, which was not in the name of Belarus, but still in Belarusian, right? Uh, you could go back to the 1860s. You can go back some other times also to the 1830s. But 1906 is good in the sense that in 1905 you had the revolution in Russia. Uh, and uh, and the Tsarist authorities were forced to make concessions following this 1905 revolution. And one of its consequences was that the ban on publication and the political use of the Belarusian language and Ukrainian language, the M's decree and, uh, and the Valuyev circulars, uh, uh, which had sort of severely restricted the use of Lithuanian uh, with the uh, uh, Latin characters, uh, all but banned Ukrainian and Belarusian as political languages was lifted and in 1906 the first uh, the first paper Nasha Niva which came to have some continuous circulation for the next 10 years uh, uh, started to be published and this was a tremendously important event for the Belarusian national intelligentsia here you have the the leading writers uh, Yanka Kupala and you have Jakub Kolas, uh, uh, monumental figures in developing the Belarusian language. Uh, this was this was a journal which was essentially is like a, a university on paper, right? It's sort of like it brought together and articulated a coherent or semi-coherent vision of a Belarusian idea that Belarus exists. We are not Poles. We have a language of our own that is fit for print that can be used. Uh, if not at all aspects of society, then certainly for very many of them, and we do want to make a conscious effort to use the language. Um, there had been a Belarusian party established in 1902, but before 1906, 1905, political parties were all but uh, well, all but illegal, and it was very, very difficult to talk about an organized political sort of like sphere, and that appeared only really with 19 with nasha neva uh, after the, liber- the temporary liberalisation uh, following the revolution of 1905 so that's what, that's a that's that's a date that the starting point this is the mm-hmm. beginning of the embryonic Belarusian, uh, what what later became some, somewhat akin to a movement or the embryo of a mo- movement
1: great yeah as a historian it's always tricky to try and figure out w- where to start to pick one date which to start, because obviously um, things are always um, following on other um, events and activities and movements. Um, in the German case, uh, is the first example of what you argue in your book that um, Belarusian national identity is uh, in large part driven by external forces, and we'll talk more about that when we come to the Soviet Union, and Poland in the 1920s. Um, But I thought now would be a good time to kind of introduce that as a concept, as one of your arguments, in terms of um, the role of external forces and how how the Germans represent the first example of that in shaping uh, Belarusian national identity.
0: Yeah, sure. The the Germans, in that sense, they were rather pragmatic, right, under Ludendorff. Uh, They were treating... Nationalism instrumentally And they were Given the experience of the Polish Nationalists within the second uh, uh, German Empire Their sort of like uh, rather negative experiences Of the outcomes of the so-called Kulturkampf The cultural struggle against the Roman Catholic Church Against the Poles They were concerned about Polish organized nationalism So Belarusian nationalism Was something that they were prepared to stimulate Just as they were stimulating Lithuanian uh, nationalism uh, as Germany collapsed, uh, I mean, if you look at 1918, the summer of 1918, if you were a gambler back then, uh, you might be betting on Germany prevailing in World War One, And that's what is what many Belarusian nationalists did. When Germany crumbled in the fall of 1918, uh, they left a void. Uh, uh, the, uh, the Bolsheviks returned to Minsk. Uh, uh in in uh, 1918 but the bolsheviks uh, even though they were not particularly sympathetic to the idea of any form of nationalism they were aware of this being being an aspect of of, of modern so to say and instead of trying to fight it they felt they, they acted according to lenin's dictum of trying to building a culture national in form and socialist in content and uh, given that during the civil war, which was a breakout soon thereafter, the, the, the white side uh, were, of course, in favor of a one and united Russia, did not recognize and explicitly rejected uh, Estonian, Ukrainian, Belarusian nationalism, the Bolsheviks were prepared to see a transformation of this enormous land mass into something akin to a, a, a federal state, a federalization of this, this area. and. As part of this, they were declaring uh, uh, on the 1st of January 1919 a Belarusian Soviet Socialist Republic. Uh, uh, this was, of course, uh, um, some, what is this, nine months after the March 25th declaration of the Belarusian People's Republic uh, that was tolerated by the Germans. Uh, the Bolsheviks uh, did rather well on the battlefield uh, in early 1919. Uh, at this part uh, uh, of of, of uh, their empire at least. And after they conquered also Vilnius uh, the following month in uh, in, in uh, February of 1918, they decided to lump together uh, the newly created Belarusian Republic with a newly declared Be- a Lithuanian Soviet Republic into the so-called Litbel, the Lithuanian Belarusian SSR. This Republic did not last very long. Uh, uh, The tide was turning, the Poles returned, uh, capturing Minsk and Vilnius in 1919-1920. And for about a year, uh, uh, Poland came to control uh, both Minsk and Kiev. And Piłsudski, the sort of founding father of Poland, the leader of the Polish military forces, was born in Vilnius, or Vilnia. He was an Eastern Pole spoke with some traces of the so-called Zabuga Polish, with sort of like uh, Eastern pronunciation. And he felt uh, an affinity with the Belarusians and with his region. And the Poles also, after the Bolsheviks and the Germans had sort of like catered, at least in the paper, to the idea of Belarusian statehood, or um, at least paying lip service to it, also Piłsudski, so to say, held his nose and uh, paid lip service to the idea of Belarusian nationalism, setting up Belarusian legions, uh, setting up uh, uh, military organizations for Belarusians to fight for Poland and giving vague promises of some sort of federal development uh, uh, after the Bolsheviks had been defeated. Of course, the Bolsheviks were not defeated and uh, the result of this conflict was the... Treaty, the Peace Treaty of Riga in 1921, which satisfied neither the Bolsheviks, neither the Poles, uh, neither the Lithuanians, uh, who lost Vilnius as,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and it was nothing less than a disaster for Ukrainian and Lithuanian nationalists, with Lithu- uh, uh, Lithuanian and Belarusian nationalists, with Belarus and Lithu- uh Belarus and Ukraine. Sorry divided between two states, uh, Second Republic of Poland and the USSR.
1: And you say that this 1920 partition of Belarus between the Soviet Union and Poland, um, as you just said, was, was a tragedy, a, a serious blow to nationalist aspirations. And yet Belarusian cultural, political, and intellectual life flourished in the 1920s. And so I, let's first talk about Soviet Belarus and Khoronizatsia, why did the Soviet authorities encourage the development of Belarusian culture, and what kinds of symbols were the uh, Belarusian nationalists um, and intellectuals choosing to represent their identity in this this decade under um, so in the Soviet part of
0: Belarus? That is a very good, very good question. the The idea was that the Bolsheviks felt that the Tsarist Russia was the prison of the peoples, and they were eager to transform this, and it's so. Russian nationalism as the major problem here. Russian nationalism had uh, complicated and problematized, say, Russian-Finnish relations, which were relatively good up until the 1880s, right, when the Russification started. The Russification had led to the backlash in the form of Finnish, Estonian, Latvian, Lithuanian, and now also Ukrainian and Belarusian nationalism. And the idea was if if they roll back Russian imperial uh, ambitions and recognize the aspirations of these various national groups. They will be able to sort of like, uh, steal the, the, fire of the, of the nationalists, right? And, and, and reproduce nationalism, a form of loyal pro-Soviet nationalism, like a little bit like tomatoes in a greenhouse, right? National in form, socialist in content. And, uh, Belarus was of the four founding republics of the USSR in 1922, Belarus was arguably the weakest, uh, had the weakest national identity. Uh, uh, and uh, when it, it was established in 19, or reestablished in in 1920, 1921, uh, the BSSR, uh, the Belarusian Soviet Socialist Republic, was later on expanded uh, first in 1924 by having the uh, Magylov and Vitebsk areas transferred from the Russian uh, SFSR and later in 26, Gomel or Homel uh, transferred also from the Russian uh, Republic into, into Belarus. And the idea was to build, uh, build a national republic, setting up a national university, an educational uh, system from primary school up to the universities. Um, a, a national academy of sciences institutes uh, of, uh, of of uh, Belarusian nation building, and one aspect of this was, of course, the rivalry with Poland. That Poland had a sizable Belarusian minority. Exactly how many? It's not hard. It's not possible to establish and ascertain because there were certain manipulations taking place. That various categories were introduced. Uh, locals was one category in the Polish census of nineteen thirty one. But between one and a half and perhaps as many as three million people uh, were Belarusians or had some form of affiliation with Belarus in the Second Republic of Poland. So one aspect of building Belarusian institutions in the BSSR was to sort of win these Belarusians over for the Soviet Belarusian cause. Uh, which they were able to do for 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 for, for, for some time. Uh, a number, a significant number of the Belarusian nationalist intellectuals, uh, most of which were sort of center left, were won over to Minsk. They left Poland and they left uh, their exile in Czechoslovakia to return in the 1920s and given important positions in the Academy of Sciences, writing textbooks, uh, starting with sort of the planning in the 1930s, an encyclopedia of Belarus, uh, geography books, uh, mapping the dialects and so on. So Belarus, given that Belarus was divided just the way Ukraine was, it became a political tool uh, for the Soviets to undermine Poland. And it also became a tool for little Lithuania, which was as dissatisfied as any party with the 1921 Riga Treaty. They refused to accept the loss of Vilnia or Vilnius, which was, of course, an interwar Poland. It had a temporary government in Kaunas, but written into the constitution that Vilnius is our eternal capital. And the Lithuanians also played this card of supporting Belarusian nationalists in Western Belarus under Poland, arming them and supporting them up until 1924. So Lithuania was also a factor here. The Soviets supported uh, Belarusian uh, uh, nationalists in Poland uh, in order to weaken the Piłsudskii. Uh, first, the Piłsudski government and later on the number of weak coalition governments that ran Poland from 1921 to 1926. Then something happened in 1926, uh, in May of 1926, that Poland went through a violent coup d'etat. Piłsudski returned to politics, made himself de facto the authoritarian leader of, of, of Poland, and soon thereafter, in December of 1926, a coup was carried out also in Kaunas and Smetonas. The Lithuanian strongman took power and made himself a dictator. Soon thereafter, Stalin was consolidating his power in the Soviet Union. And with Pisutsky back in power, uh, was had played his game of tolerating Belarusian nationalists. And for a while, he was seemingly tolerating Belarusian nationalism, and there were indications that uh, the Polish new government under Piłsudski's influence were prepared also to use potentially the Belarusian question in the BSSR in a way akin to the way Stalin and the Soviet leadership had played his card against Piłsudski. In that sense, this sort of window of opportunity enabling Belarusian nationalists to play out Actually, these three powers, Poland, the USSR, and Lithuania against one another, and taking advantage of this rivalry to the benefits became a liability, right? It backfired, and suddenly, from 1927-28 onward, Stalin saw these Belarusian returnees, Belarusian nationalists, as in many ways fellow travelers that were not fully reliable, that were going along, supporting institution of Belarusization, but they wanted to go one step further. And particularly in 1926, uh, one sort of breaking point here was the suggestion by some of these Belarusian national communists in Minsk to Belarusify the divisions of the Red Army stationed in the BSSR to switch the language of command from Russian into Belarusian. And, that was something I would say also less brutal rulers than Josef Stalin. Uh, Kaiser Franz Josef of Austria-Hungary could not accept in 1905, 1906, the Hungarians trying to majorize or Hungarize uh, the, the Hungarian army in the Austro hungarian Empire. The army command has to be German, and Franz Josef refused to accept this as dangerous liability. Uh, certainly, Joseph Stalin and his leadership. If they weren't already suspicious about the Belarusian nationalism F twenty six, F twenty six, Belarusian nationalism seen as more of a potential liability, and moreover, with Poland being an authoritarian state, uh, the ability of this of the Bolsheviks to play this national card in Belarus and for that matter in, in sorry in western Belarus and for that matter in western Ukraine was severely curtailed uh, since Poland ceased to be. Uh, uh, parliamentary uh, democracy.
1: Mm-hmm. And that gets again at this key argument in your book that much of the development of Belarusian nationalism was, in a sense, um, uh, the opportunities were there when the major powers around them decided there were opportunities. And, and we'll see that when we talk about um, the opposite, when the those opportunities are closed off and um, the Soviets in particular decide to suppress the nationalist movement But before we get to that, um, one of the most fascinating um, images in your book are the quadrilingual signs from Belarus during the 1920s because the Soviet nationalities policy wasn't just supporting um, a a Belarusian national identity. They were also, um, these signs are in Belarusian, Yiddish, Polish, and Russian. So there was also this Kornizatsia was, was, Make helping some Polish national identity and 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 a Jewish Yiddish um, identity in Belarus. So how how did that those that interact this um, the Belarusian Soviet Socialist Republic, which is a titular people, then that are being um, kind of established with a national identity, but also these uh, smaller groups um, being developed at the same time. Can, what what was the interplay uh,
0: there? Yeah, the, this goes back to the idea of, of Stalin being a thinker, right, in that sense. He was a vicious politician in many ways, but he was a thinker, and he was the sort of ideologue and architect of the Soviet nationalities policies. And And he was aware that this idea, that this Russian empire had to be transformed into a, a, a federation, right? And one aspect of this was that he created a, a Belarusian Soviet socialist republic. And the idea was, of course, that nationalism was a counter-reaction to Russian sort of imperial arrogance. So we have to, as Terry Martin in his excellent book, The Affirmative Action Empire, uh, uh, wrote, he referred to this as the greatest danger principle, that Russian imperialism was the big problem, not Ukrainian nationalists, not not Finnish or not not not, not Belarusian nationalists. But Russian nationalists was the engine that drove all these sort of like uh reactions in the form of a uh, minor nationalism so once belarus was technically uh, uh well actually they were nominally independent i mean b- between 1919 and 1922 when the soviet union was set up belarus was technically independent right it was not yet the soviet union of course in reality uh, they did not even have their own delegation negotiating the settlement uh, in, in Riga in 1921 but that's another story but technically independent nominally independent and uh the idea was, of course, there that Belarusian nationalism was seen as a result of Russian nationalism, and once Belarus is sort of a unit an entity of its own, uh, Be- this was, of course, the heartland of Ashkenazi culture. Uh, Minsk had a Jewish population of, I believe, fifty nine percent. Vilnius, which was not in the Belarusian uh, Soviet Socialist Republic but uh, it was sort of the, the imagined capital of many Belarusian nationalists. They had about 43% Jews. Uh, other cities had as many as Mosin, I believe, had as many as 78% Jews. So the cities were Jewish and then Yiddish-speaking. Uh, there were sizable Polish minorities also. And there were, of course, in the East Part of Republic, Russian speakers. So the idea was that once we make Belarus, or be- BSSR, we Belarusify the Republic... We want to avoid repeating the sort of the dynamics which gave birth to uh, nationalist reactions in the empire as a whole. So therefore, they also had twin policies or quadruple policies of uh, uh, Yiddishization, uh, a, a partial pol- Polonization within the republic with regional uh, Soviets run in Polish uh, schools in Polish, schools in Yiddish, schools in Russian, and in the some borderland regions. They were also village Soviets run in Latvian and Lithuanian. Uh, so this became a very interesting sort of uh, polylinguistic environment with four official languages. And the laws stipulated that all the sort of uh, documents, uh, passports, uh, driver's licenses, uh, f- uh forms be filled out the post office had to be in the four official languages so technically they had the same uh, the same uh, 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 the same uh, rights uh, which led to very very significant bureaucracy of course uh, which i guess uh, in some ways backfired but this was you should remember this was during the time of the new economic policy the nep 21 to 28 with Stalin's revolution from above, the violent transformation with the introduction of, of, of five-year plans and, uh, and the centralized economy, I mean, it was difficult enough to run this massive enterprise uh, with, with dozens and dozens, I believe, hundreds of ministries uh, in the later Soviet era in one language, right? In one centralized language. If you in Belarus alone have four uh, official languages and two more uh, locally, uh, and of course, not talk about Ukraine and, and, and Russia itself, where they also ran policies of tatarization and, and whatnot, right. Uh, you have a very, very difficult bureaucracy to run, but for a while, uh, before 1926 uh, and before Stalin's consolidation of power, this seemed this was an experimental period of significant cultural uh, autonomy for the, the Belarusian uh, and Yiddish and Polish uh, minorities. Of course, politically they had to, of course, toe the the party line. But culturally, the open theaters in Polish theaters, Yiddish theaters, right? They had a language uh, and orthography reform of Belarusian uh, It came later in nineteen twenty twenty. Uh, sorry, thirty four. But they also introduced the Polish Soviet orthography. Uh, they reformed thoroughly the Yiddish uh, language in the in, in the BSSR. So this was a serious attempt of making Belarusian a language which could be fit for use in all sectors of uh, an emerging socialist republic. And I guess uh, this period, you know, I found it very, very fascinating and it's so poorly covered in literature because I guess as long as the Soviet Union existed and, and, and the Soviet nationalities policy under Brezhnev and Khrushchev and a little bit later also was that of emphasizing the Russian language and Russian culture uh we look back through this prism. Uh, whereas in reality in the nineteen twenties and a very very different uh policy was carried out. And uh, in many ways I took the cue uh from uh, Terry Martin uh, and his I was inspired by his book on the Affirmative Action Empire, and I was sort of placing you know just focusing on Belarus as such and looking at the borderlands, this this sort of divided republic and how this these experimental policies this interplayed. Uh, between uh, the, the, the three regional uh, or four for, to some extent, if you include Germany regional power brokers and players in, in this part of europe
1: mm-hmm. and despite all of these um, this focus on the development of the Belarusian language and culture and theater and and um, written works, literature in uh, the Belarusian language. I was surprised to see that the primary opposition to the use of Belarusian as a literary language seems to have come from the peasantry, who are the only ones who actually spoke Belarusian as their primary language. So why was that?
0: Well, it has to do with in fact that I think we take nationalism for, for granted, right? That I'm sitting here in Sweden right now. It's so, sort of so, so, so self-evident that I am Swedish, right? That I'm identifying as, as a Swede. That's sort of like, you know, I I it's hard to think outside that, that sort of category. Uh but these uh, and that's of course true for many, many uh, well most Western countries in that sense, right? But I think in national categories. That that wasn't the case really uh, in, in 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 for 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 the largely illiterate Belarusian population. And it's a situation sort of like a little bit similar to the I guess, to, to, to the situation with Yiddish today, right? Uh, David Katz writes about this, right? Uh, 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 the paradox that the people today that have an intense love and affiliation, identification of the Yiddish language, most uh, many of which in North America do not speak it or use it at an everyday uh, a, a, everyday level. They don't pass it down to the children. They have a passion for a sort of like a, a, a theoretical Yiddish, the Yiddish of high culture of of, of Sholom Aleichem and whatnot, right? Whereas the people that actually do speak in a day-to-day basis are very often the ultra-orthodox groups, which reject Hebrew for whatever reasons, uh, and but use Yiddish and pass it on to the children without really having identification with the language as such. They use it because they use it, and 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 the he, he, holy language of Hebrew should not be used for day-to-day use. It was a similar situation, and remains a similar situation in today's Belarus that the people that choose to speak Belarusian uh, in 1910, 1915, these were people that were Polish speakers or Russian speakers or spoke some form of local dialect. They decided, we're going to be Belarusians. Belarusians speak the Belarusian language. Uh, in many ways, not dissimilar from what happened in other Central European countries where Vidrich Smith, the Czech national composer, decided almost from one year to another that my native language is no longer going to be German, it's going to be Czech. Or Sibelius switched from Swedish into Finnish, right? They started to identify as a Finn. It was a similar thing, situation also in, in Belarus, that the elite switched into Belarusian. Uh, and very, many ways, ways they had to learn Belarusian. They were codifying and, and developing the language as they went. Whereas people that actually spoke the language locally uh, had no sort of affiliation with the language as such. Uh, they would have a religious affiliation uh, as Orthodox, or in some cases as Catholics, and they resented being categorized by uh, the local uh, or uh, union authorities. So the idea was, of course, when they were trying to draw the lines between the various Soviet republics, when, where do you then draw the line between Russia and Belarus? Where does the Belarusian language cease to be used when does Russian start? When does Belarusian cease? And when does the dialect transfer into, into Ukrainian? And when but people themselves were not self identifying as, as Belarusians, when they were asked by the census takers, Who are you? the census takers got, so, so to say, quote unquote, wrong answers. That they could get an answer in the local vernacular Belarusian dialect that, No, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm Polish. I go to the Polish church, therefore I'm Polish. And they said, no, no, you speak Belarusian. You must be Belarusian. No, no, that language no longer exists. It used to be such a language, but no, I'm a Pole. Or I'm a Russian because I go to Russian church. This is the Orthodox Church. So since they, they gave the census takers in many ways, so to say, the wrong answer, uh, they started to abandoning the idea of national self-identification. And instead, the Soviet... Uh, Architects of the, of, of, of the organization of the Belarusian Soviet Socialist Republic started to rely on demographic data, uh, sorry, ethnographic data and what sort of dialects they spoke, what sort of folk songs they were singing, what colors on the folk costumes, what sort of folk melodies and fairy tales were there. And after having determined that Vitemsk and Mahilyov were not to be regarded as Russians, uh, the population there, but rather Belarusians, they were transferred to Belarus where, whether they wanted it or not. And in 1926, so was the Homel area, areas which were primarily, well, we spoke dialects, which were sort of a transition between Belarusian and, and Russian, but they were transferred to Belarus. And with that, suddenly the point of gravity transferred Belarus and gave it a more eastern, so to say, uh, character, right? If Minsk was pretty much the geographic center of Belarus, or the BSSR between 1921 and 24, when they added these regions, the geographic center became more to the east, right? The, the, the Russian, so to say, character of the republic became more pronounced. And still, the Soviets did not want really to give up this idea about Belarusization, which was in full swing and reached this sort of its peak in 1926. And policies to forcibly Belarusify the the newly established Belarusian state university uh, was carried out in a sort of characteristic for the Soviet Union heavy-handed fashion. The peasants did not want to switch over. They were reluctant to feel Belarusian. They were have this imposed upon them. And the Soviet authorities felt that this Belarusization went slowly because uh, people that were more educated were also reluctant to send their kids to Belarusian language schools as long as the universities and the social sort of hierarchy, the social ladder was primarily Russian-speaking. speaker speaking. So the idea became then also to Belarusify higher education, which meant in some cases that they were threatening professors that declared that they refused to speak this uh, peasant language <laughs> during the lectures. They were warned that if you are caught speaking Russian, in class as a professor, you'll be fired and you will lose your uh, your retirement benefits. And they fired a few high-profile professors in that sense. And it's a very paradoxical situation. It was enforced by people that were fundamentally very skeptical about nationalism, whereas the supposed beneficiaries of this Belarusianization were also less than excited about it. And the people that truly enjoyed and believed in the Belarusianization were only partially committed to the Soviet experiment. And they were would ideally like to see this go one step further. After the formal Belarusization of the universities and education, uh, many of the people that had returned from exile would ultimately would like to see uh, some sort of Belarusian statehood, independence even, right? So this was a marriage of convenience in which the beneficiaries were not too excited about it, and uh, and uh, instead, it benefited people that were less, in the eyes of Stalin, less than loyal, which could, of course, uh, from Stalin's perspective, also be a liability to Stalin himself, uh, particularly after Piłsudski started acting in such a way as it seemed that he might be willing to play the Belarusian card against Stalin. Uh, around uh, at this period, from 28, 29 uh, this window of opportunity uh, closed and uh, it backfired upon these nationalists that now were directly seen as potential traitors. And with the uh, new organization of the economy, with the Stalinist transformation of society and an increasingly paranoid atmosphere af- uh, from around 1930 onwards, uh, this clearly worked against them. And many of people that had returned to this Soviet, Soviet Belarus and professed their loyalty to the system uh, were uh, over the 1930s arrested, deported. And well, this is mostly after the period of 1931, which is sort of like my ending year for this, my work. Over the 1930s, they were arrested with three waves of arrests, and most of these people uh, were uh, shot. Or died in prison in the late 1930s, uh, but this is a little bit after the the end of this of my study, which is really on the Soviet Belarusization and the interplay uh, between these three states: Lithuania, Poland, and the Soviet Union in the 20s, primarily.
1: Mm-hmm. And so we go from this peak of. Um- Belarusian nation building in 1926 to 1927 when Stalin initiates a suppression of Belarusian nationalism that in many ways is completed um, by 1931. Uh, so can you talk about that process during those four years? And, and given the fact that the Belarusian nationalists continued to be arrested and, um, and killed well into the 30s, why you ended in 1931? What about 1931 Marks an a, an end point of a stage.
0: Well, again, just as 1906 subjective choice to to you know to to, to pick one date, I think 20, uh, 1931 makes sense in the sense that the end of the Belarusization was not an abrupt from one day to another uh, uh, clean break. Right? It was a slow scaling down and reversal of the Belarusization uh, policies uh, that uh, continued. Up until roughly 1934, uh, and I guess you can argue e- e- even up until 1941, because technically Belarus was still multilingual up until uh, the breakout of of uh, of uh, World War II, or the Great Patriotic War, as they would say in Belarus today. So it was a slow process in which, uh, with the launching of the Stalinist revolution from above, the collectivization, the 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 uh, the, the the forced industrialization, the five-year plans, uh, came up with new demands on society. It was simply not uh, pertinent to run a little republic like Belarus with a population of about 5 million people uh, in four official languages. This was more of a possibility during the time of the NEP, right? Uh, the people that had they were running the Academy of Sciences uh, – uh, were seen as well. They had uh, expressed. Uh, Yanka Kopala, the leading Belarusian writer, had returned voluntarily to Soviet Ukraine, uh, Soviet Belarus. Uh, he had written poems. Uh, well, uh, a poem, a famous poem, praising Piłsudski as a knight in shining armor in 1919. We're not thinking too much about this. This was the time when Piłsudski was an ally of the Belarusian uh, nationalists. Uh, by 1929, this was used against him. Uh, uh, one point, one breaking point uh, aside from the, uh, the attempts to Belarusify the, the, the Belarusian the Red Army divisions on Belarusian soil was the conference in 1926 um, a, a conference on the orthography and the on linguistic reforms in Belarus bringing together Belarusians from Czechoslovakia, from Poland and from the Soviet Union and from Lithuania and there the idea was advanced that perhaps also Belarus should, Belarusian should be Latinized. That was something that Stalin and the Soviet leadership could not accept. And those who had at least passively accepted the idea of potentially considering the Latinization of Belarusian were seen now as, 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 as potential, well, uh, fifth columns as traitors. Uh, Belarusian, Russian, and Ukrainian were off limits, it turned out, for uh, Latinization. And a period of repression and rollback started in late 1926, and it was not, as I said, a clean break. Uh, But there are many reasons to assume that Stalin was planning a major show trial in 1931 against a fictitious organization, the the League for the Liberation of Belarus, which never really existed Uh, 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 it, it was to run parallel to a, a similar show trial in Soviet Ukraine against a similarly fictitious organization, the, the, the League for the Liberation of Ukraine, which was a fictitious organization based upon the real organization which had existed at a period of World War I. Uh It also derailed when Yanka, uh, Yanka Kupala, the leading Belarusian intellectual, the most celebrated Belarusian writer, tried to commit suicide by cutting his stomach up when he was being arrested by the GPU. And uh, he was supposed to play the central role in the show trial, which never took place. Uh, his case got a lot of bad publicity abroad, and uh, there wasn't really a show trial held show trial held in Belarus. But uh, uh, many of the people that were involved in the Belarus association were arrested in '31. They were given three or four or five years in jail. Many of them were released in 32, 1933 already, uh, were able to work, but were sent away from Belarus. They were technically promoted in some cases to various central authorities in Moscow, and then they were arrested again in 1936, 1937, and at that point they were shot. Uh, so we are talking here about uh, the exact number again, uh, is not possible to ascertain but the people shot in Belarus over the nineteen, twenties and thirties, uh we're talking about numbers in the tens of thousands uh, uh of people being being shot, uh killed uh, as part of these these repressions. Uh again, we have to sort of look at all Union numbers and look at you know the Soviet Union population of the USSR and the population of the BSSR in relation to this uh, Belarus was disproportionately uh, suffering from political purges. Uh, Malenkov was sent personally by Stalin to supervise the terror in Belarus in the 1930s. And this was, of course, due to Stalin's well-documented obsession with, with Poland and, and Poles. And Belarus was, of course, a border region uh, seen as a, potentially a, a target of, of Polish uh, manipulations. The collectivization... Went slower in Belarus than in neighboring Ukraine, and there was a famine, there was a hunger in thirty-two, thirty-three, but not a famine on the scale of mass starvation, mass deaths, the, uh, the way it was in, in 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 Ukraine. But Belarus, given that the country was or the republic was relatively small, uh, the elites were disproportionately affected by this subsequent waves of terror. And uh, as much as ninety percent of the members of the Belarusian uh, Writers Union were repressed, not all shot, but deported and imprisoned, in some cases tortured. And uh, this really, uh, this policy, in, in a way, was successful in it. It really broke the neck of the Belarusian intelligentsia in the republic. And unlike unlike neighboring Ukraine, which had a reservoir. Uh, of nationalist intelligentsia in in Galicia, in Lviv, uh, Western Belarus and Poland did not really have that. Uh, The center of Belarusian national movement was in in Vilnia, uh, competing with other rivaling nationalisms. The Belarusians were less literate and and less developed than the Western Ukrainians. And so if the Soviet repressions, the Polish uh, uh, heavy-handed crackdown upon Ukrainian nationalism, led to a radicalization and to some extent even a fascistization of Ukrainian nationalism from 1934 35 onwards. In Belarus, it really essentially destroyed the Belarusian, the embryonic Belarusian national movement on both sides of the border. And Belarus ne- never really recovered from this heavy handed backlash and a functional bilingual emerged and Belarus sort of uh, was never dissolved as a Soviet Republic. It, re- it, it, re- it re- remained the Soviet Republic, of course, throughout the Soviet experience, right, the Soviet-, Soviet period, but it was very much Russian-speaking and very, very heavily Sovietized and particularly in the 50s and 60s and 70s in many ways the most Soviet, the most loyal of the Soviet Republics and it experienced a very severe, very significant uh, improvement in the standard of living so if we are to look at sort of the reasons for the, for the sort of the Sovietization of Belarus well one is of course the massive scale of the purges of Belarus the pro- this disproportionate impact of Belarus, one is the great patriotic war as they call it the very vicious hor- horrific German occupation and the subsequent Soviet return which was seen by many people as genuine liberation for the brutal Soviet rule, and thereafter, a significant improvement in the standard of living under Brezhnev and Khrushchev, which came hand in hand with a policy of russification. So Belarus only, you know, these these, these sort of the forms, the Belarusian forms remained and were only again given a Belarusian content, really, uh, in the late Gorbachev era and, and the early 1990s, when they began sort of like I would say a third, or even a second, or even a third Belarusization took place from 1990 to 19, 1990, say, 1993,
1: 1994. Mm-hmm. And I think this goes a long way to explaining why Belarus today is often call- called a denationalized state. Uh, and I thought that was a really interesting phrase in reading your book and what you just um, explained now about Belarus. Um, in the Soviet Union, makes that much more clear. Obviously, you're a historian, but what do you think that um, that characteristic of denationalization? How does that play out today in Belarus, and, and what does that mean for the Belarusian state and and society at, today?
0: Well. <laughs> I I guess you are alluding to David Marple's book, Uh, one of the books that actually inspired me to work more on this, um, Belarus, a denationalized nation. And Marple's happened to be my, well, originally my my, my doctoral supervisor. And he always, when he gets his question, always, I think very correctly, spells out that in his original manuscript, there was a question mark uh, following this Belarus a denationalized nation, question mark, which the publisher made him remove, and uh, because it's sort of like, so this became his perhaps most famous book, and, and very often he's associated with this idea of that Belarus was denationalized, and it's sort of like the sort of presupposed idea that the republic once for a time was national, and I don't think that this was what either Marples or myself would argue, but uh, in that- So uh, perhaps-
1: Perhaps unnationalized state might be a better term.
0: <laughs> yeah, a state in which uh, nationalism was never very successful. It was seen as a nuisance, it was imposed from above and abroad and used as a political tool. And uh, uh, even today, it, 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 I guess it doesn't really, it holds some sway uh, among partial intelligentsia. Uh, perhaps no more than 15, perhaps 20% of the Belarusian uh, population identify with the legacy of the Belarusian People's Republic of 1918. The sort of like white, red, white flag. And the idea of a Belarus which should speak Belarusian, which should embrace its European heritage, become part of the EU and potentially NATO, turn the back on Russia and be part of Western orbit. Many of these intellectuals are, by the way, Roman Catholics. Uh, uh, but a large majority of the Belarusians uh, speak the Belarus uh, speak the Russian language, even though they <laughs> tend to give uh, respond just like in the 1920s uh, to in the opinion polls. Say, well, you know, what is your native language? And you get numbers of uh, very high numbers, forty, fifty, sixty percent say we are Belarusians, even claim we speak Belarusian as my native language but of course then you ask them what language did your mother speak? To you all, well, of course Russian uh, there's this, I, this Soviet idea that if you are a Belarusian you should claim the Belarusian is your native language even though you do not use that language right uh, so the fact that there, is, there is a Belarus is overwhelming in Russian speaking uh, but it doesn't necessarily need, mean that It is denationalized. Uh, Paradoxically, uh, given Lukashenko's platform and orientation and his hostility to, for a long time, to Belarusian national ideas, uh, what's taking place today in Belarus is a form of nationalization, uh, in in the sense of a banal nationalism, as Michael Billig uh, famously uh, uh, referred to, a banal nationalism there. The very matter of fact that when Belarusians turn on the TV in the evening to get the their weather forecast with a map, not of, with a map of the Soviet Union, but with a map of independent Belarus. Uh, when they send a letter, those of us who still do that, they, they put a, a, a postage stamp with a, it says Belarus on it. When they travel, they show Belarusian passport. The domains says .by. Uh, so... A generation now for 25 years, for a quarter the century, this is de facto an independent state. And a generation now grows up that doesn't know anything else. Uh, and even though the majority of them still do not speak Belarusian, they speak Russian, but they feel Belarusian. They're being Belarusified, maybe not in the way that the more dedicated Belarusian-speaking opposition would like them to see. But still, most people do well, increasingly do not feel that they are Russians. Not that Russians are fundamentally others to many Belarusians, but that an identity is appearing which is becoming slowly less and less Soviet in a republic which still in March of 1991 had over 80% of its population voting uh, in in the referendum about whether to keep uh, a renewed union uh, the, the referendum, which Gorbachev announced in March of 1991, there over 80 percent of the Belarusians voted to stay in a reformed Soviet Union. Uh, now today, a very significant population of the Belarusians, uh, possibly majority, I would say, support the idea of Belarusian independence and do not want to do away with this idea. And Lukashenko himself has increasingly, particularly after 2008, come to embrace. The idea of Belarusian statehood, and uh, partially uh, endorsing a part of the of the legacy of also the Belarusian opposition of the of the 1918 Belarusian People's Republic, which is slowly uh, uh, and partially being rehabilitated. Uh, so also in terms of memory politics, a very explicit national uh, sort of very Soviet. Identity is slowly being replaced, by increasingly uh, uh, Belarusian national uh, ideas. So, um, and of course, this is also being strengthened by, I would say, also the Russian current Russian government's uh, uh, behavior and uh, the foreign policy, uh, not least in Ukraine. Uh, that, uh, to some extent, also makes Lukashenko feel very wary and increasingly relying on. Uh, Belarusian themes to shore up uh, the autonomy of his regime vis-a-vis Russia.
1: Well, thank you very much for taking the time to talk with me today and for also giving us an opportunity to learn so much about Belarus. I feel much uh, better educated about this region of the world uh, than I did before I read your book. And so I'd like to ask our last question for everyone that we interview. What are you working on now?
0: Well, I have, I'm a little bit of a scattered brain. I have so many things going on at the same time. I, I am working on a sequel on this. Uh, again, with a, I guess, partially arbitrary uh, uh, periodization. Belarus under Stalinism, 1931 to 1956. Uh, then again, placing the Belarusian uh, national activists uh, as, as agents, uh, giving them agency. Uh, not only seeing this as the victims of Stalin, which of, certainly there are clear aspects of this, but also looking at the Belarusian national activists under these new conditions, looking also at the Belarusian diaspora, uh, at the uh, uh, attempts in the 19, well, uh, 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 at the second Belarusian People's Republic, be established in 1944, supported by Nazi Germany. Uh, the Belarusian emigres and failed attempts uh, by CA-sponsored Belarusian diaspora activists to infiltrate uh, the BSSR parachuting uh, agents into Western Belarus uh, with a sort of cut-off date uh, by 1956. That is what I'm working on, and it runs parallel to a project on Ukrainian nationalists uh, during World War II and in the early Cold War era, I'm focusing on one wing of the UK- organization of Ukrainian nationalists, uh, the least radical, so to say, uh, uh, that under nikola Lebed, one of the own leaders, and their support by the CIA in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s. So two projects, Ukrainian and Belarusian nationalism, in the immediate post-war Uh, Cold War era that's what I'm working on
1: Well I look forward to learning more about the Eastern Slavs uh, the Belarusians and the Ukrainians um, by reading those books when they come out and perhaps we'll have an opportunity in the future to interview you again for the new books in East European Studies but for now thank you very much uh, for taking the time to talk to us
0: It's been a pleasure, thank you so much
1: And thanks to our listeners for joining us today, and we'll look forward to uh, meeting with you again next month for the next installment of New Books in East European Studies.